Many of you who are visiting today will not know, but of course our members do, that we have been going through a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Philippians. And as I was meditating on the book of Philippians uh, over not just this past week, but several weeks, I've noticed two very extraordinary things that bring us to stay for the bulk of our time this morning in the book of Philippians and also to talk about the afterlife. Because in three of the four chapters in the book of Philippians, the afterlife is explicitly mentioned. And so we don't have to go far in our study of the book of Philippians to talk about resurrection. I want this morning to talk about what Paul teaches regarding the afterlife, what the Lord Jesus Himself says about the afterlife, and even what God the Father has to say about the afterlife in some selected scripture. But I want us to start in this book of Philippians. So if you'll be so kind as to turn there, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This is a Pauline letter. You know, of course, that Paul is writing this letter from prison. It's not because he has done something wrong. No, it's actually because he's done something very rightly. He's been preaching the gospel. And in the first century, talking about the lordship of someone other than Caesar will put you in a Roman prison. And Paul is talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. He even says in Philippians chapter 2, for example, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those were fighting words from those Roman colonies like this city of Philippi, dominated by Rome and its culture, dominated even by Nero and his reign. First Peter gives us insight into that. And so this particular book strikes me as a wonderful starting place, a great platform to talk about life and the afterlife. And it immediately jumps out at us in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul is praying to the Philippians, and one of the things that he thanks God for is what he teaches us and prays about for them in Philippians 1.6. Here's what he says, and I am sure of this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that Paul talks about here in the book of Philippians on a couple of occasions, and surely he does right here in verse 6 as well, and that is this phrase, the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ. That is a phrase pregnant with meaning. What Paul has in mind when he talks about this day of Jesus Christ is that there is a fixed day in which Jesus Christ will return to this earth. We call it a number of different things, the second coming, 
We call it uh, the bodily return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords of all eternity, and certainly for all things on the earth and everything under the earth because Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul says here, as he prays for these Philippians, I want you to know that not just efficaciously with regard to my prayers, but the truth of the Word of God throughout the Bible is that God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it, mature it, bring it to its completion when Jesus Christ comes again. And I want you to back up to the latter part of verse 4, because Paul says this, Always in every prayer of mine for you, for the Philippians, for you all, making my prayer with what? Joy. And I bring up this concept of joy or rejoicing because, interestingly enough and wonderfully enough, If you read through the book of Philippians, all four chapters in one setting, and if you did it a number of times, and I would encourage you to do that, you would find that this is why so many call Philippians the epistle of joy. Because that word joy or rejoicing is mentioned so many times in this letter. And interestingly enough, for our purposes this morning... Every time Paul speaks about the afterlife in this letter, he ties it to joy. Now, that's front page news. Because in our world and in so many of our circumstances, the prospect of dying is not something that we readily attach to the concept of joy. Is that not so? We think of death as foreboding. We think of death as dark, as shadowy, even in some measure sinister. We think of death in a way that brings not so much love and joy, or so it seems, but the idea of gloom and sorrow. And of course, there is a sense in which when we watch our own loved ones die, or we ourselves come to the prospect of death, that it is a sorrowful time in a sense. But for the Christian, for the believer in Jesus Christ, for the one who is looking for the day of Jesus Christ, it does not have to be much of doom and gloom at all. Oh, there may be a a tinge of that. I remember recently watching a, a videotape of uh, beloved R.C. Sproul, one of the great Bible teachers of our time, and he was asked a question in one of his conferences, and on that videotape he was asked, and he's with the Lord now, having died recently, he was asked by someone, do you fear death? And his response was, no, no, I don't fear death. And then he paused for a moment. He said, I don't fear the reality of death. It's just the how of my dying that gives me a little pause. So it's not the fact of it, he's saying. It's the how of it 
And maybe that's a part of the sorrow, right? But the fact of death, the reality of death, is something that no Christian should have gloom and doom over. Why? Well, I want to show you. When the Apostle Paul talks about having this confidence, and you remember I played around a little bit with you a couple of weeks ago when I planted in your mind this concept of verse 6 in chapter 1, he who in you, he who in you. That's what he says in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that so significant? It's so significant because of the one who's writing such a thing, the Apostle Paul, and he is languishing in a Roman dungeon. He's incarcerated. He's in jail. And yet, he says, I'm making this prayer, this prayer wish, this prayer hope, this prayer belief with joy, not only for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, but also because of this huge confidence, this hope, uh, nay, an expectation that the God who began a good work in you as Philippian believers in Jesus Christ, He will bring it to pass all the way. There'll not be one genuine Christian who goes in death to be with the Lord who isn't joyful in the going and having even greater joy in the arrival. There's not going to be one single Christian. Oh, we might have the sorrow, as I said, of leaving loved ones. And those loved ones who are behind, who stay behind, they're going to have great sorrow over losing that person. But the idea of where that person is going, irrespective of the manner of their death, is something to rejoice in. It, it really is. This was, this was so important to Paul. And so important for him to teach these Philippians that he begins here in Philippians 1.6, He who in you this good work will bring it to its completion, its mature finish, its right end. He says in the latter part of chapter 1, beginning in the latter part of verse 18, these words, Yes, and I will rejoice. There's that word again. Yes, and I will rejoice. He says, I have joy when I think of what Christ is doing in you and what he'll finish when he comes again. And I have this joy, even though I'm languishing in this Roman prison, that what's happening in you is the progress or the advance of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. I rejoice in all of it. And then he says this in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, this incarceration, this imprisonment, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now we have to stop there and uh, do a little work on this concept of deliverance. Now this particular word certainly can be translated as deliverance, but it also 
is the word that Paul uses consistently with a translation that should be something like this, salvation. Salvation. So change it in your translation. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, this incarceration, and the progress of the gospel that's coming about as a result of my incarceration, this will turn out for my salvation. Now, what kind of salvation is he talking about? I mean, it, it could be, and, and maybe to a degree it certainly is, Paul is talking about his hope for release from imprisonment so that he could continue to advance or progress the gospel. Sure. But if he consistently and virtually always uses this particular word that's translated here in the ESV as deliverance with the word salvation, spiritual salvation, then far beyond what Paul is thinking about, and he's not thinking about himself and getting out of prison so that he can do what he jolly well pleases. He's talking about that if he's in prison, the gospel's going to be advanced. If he's out of prison, the gospel's going to be advanced. And so therefore, what he means by this deliverance is the idea that in my life and in my ministry, whatever happens, if I'm in prison or out of it, if I'm living my life or coming to my death, the progress of it all is going to be my ultimate eschatological salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. You say, use that word eschatological. What does that mean? Eschatology just means future things, last things, the end. And when he says that I believe through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit, this imprisonment and everything that's happening to me, and whether I'm delivered out of this prison or not, here's the deal. Everything that's about my life, everything that I'm doing, what I sleep, what I eat, what I drink, what I proclaim, how I live, it will all turn out for my ultimate spiritual salvation. And then he says this in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage or all boldness, now as always, Christ will be honored or exalted or magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Oh, now, with this context, with this fuller context, Paul is widening himself out so that even if he is talking about deliverance from an incarceration in Rome, now he's widening it out to talk about the end, the future, the ultimate eschatological salvation for everybody who believes. And so, whether by my life or my death, he says, Christ will always be honored or exalted or magnified in my body, whether I live or whether I die. What a perspective. What a perspective. Some of you may have, like my wife, the diagnosis of cancer. Maybe it's inoperable. Maybe it's incurable. Some of you might have another kind of debilitating malady. Some of you might be facing financial ruin. 
Some of you may be doing things to your own body that you presume are right and good, but they're having the opposite effect. Some of you are aged. You're slowing down. Some of you are young, and that's happening to you. Some of you are older, and it's happening even more rapidly. All of us are in the process of dying. Is it not so? From the first day out of the womb until the tomb, everybody's dying. Paul's dying. He's clear about that. You can't read his epistles without seeing that Paul has both a heavenly-mindedness and an honest integrity about the fact that he's dying every day. In fact, he even says, I die daily. He's dying. We're all dying. And so what's his perspective? He says, whether by life or by death, here's what I'm all about. Christ will be honored and exalted and magnified in my body, in my physical life, including all of my mental faculties, both the physical and the spiritual. And then these amazing words in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Now try that on television. Oh, I know that they would be fighting words to live as Christ. I know that. But try the idea on people who fear death. And you know that's the truth about unbelievers. They fear death. Because the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 that those who aren't Christians have a slavery about them. Satan has them enslaved to the fear of death. And the Bible says it this way, all their life long. That's what the Word of God says. And boy, when I have the opportunity to speak to unbelievers and I speak to them about their spiritual lives and I bring up the concept that we're all dying, you seem to receive it really well. There were folks all in this congregation then when I said we're all dying and they're, they're nodding yes of course of course it's the truth of the word of God it's the truth of my experience and yet you talk to so many unbelievers and their response is don't talk to me about that don't 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 say anything about that I don't want to talk about passing on I don't want to talk about having to go to the man upstairs I don't want to kick the bucket all these euphemisms about dying. It's about time that Christians say what the Word of God tells us. We're all dying. We're all progressively dying. And whatever manner God chooses, which may bring levels of angst, but the fact of it is a fact. We're all dying. And here's Paul's great perspective. If I live on this earth, I live for Christ. If I die and leave this earth, there's nothing for me but gain. Well, what kind of gain? I'm going to go be with Christ. And then Christ 
will transport me and others back to this earth to rule and reign with him forever and ever and ever. So to live Christ, to die, gain. By the way, you know there are, there's no verb in the Greek text here, is. It's this, to live Christ, to die, gain. That's a motto. That's, that's an epitaph on a, on a gravestone. To live, Christ, to die, gain. Not loss. Not loss. You say, but I lost my life. No, but you, you gained your life. And you gained far more than your life. You gained Christ's affirmation of you, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the heart of your Lord. Yes, it's gain. Oh, we love those whom we love, and we cherish our families and our spiritual families, and we don't want to depart from them. And, and Paul has that tension here. Notice what he says. He says, I am hard-pressed between Fruitful labor for you, you Philippians, or my going to be with Christ. He says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means if I'm to continue to live in this body, that means fruitful labor for me. He's still other focused, isn't he? Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh, that means to remain living, is more necessary on your account. The bottom line, my people, is that if you and I had this this otherworldly perspective, Death for us would be nothing more than simply a novel experience. Don't fear death. Don't fear it. Because to depart and be with Christ in the afterlife is far better. Far better. Don't be tied to the things of this world. Think about Christ. Think about heaven. Think about exalting Christ in all of your thoughts and all of your attitudes with no sin and no tears and no sorrow. You say, yes, but I want to do that on my time and at the time of my choosing. That's not yours. That's not yours. It's Christ's. I I think that so many people have this angst of soul about death because they're far too tied to this world. Far too tied to the things of this world. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. This is what he says about this idea of living and dying. It's a different context than Philippians 1. But it's similar, Romans 14, 7. For none of us, Paul says, lives 
to himself. That's the way Christians ought to behave with each other. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You see, if you have the same perspective about both life and death, when death comes, it will not be a foreboding fact to you. It'll be an eventual reality. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once and then the the judgment. And if Christ is your Savior, then the judgment will have already been borne by His death on the cross. So that death is your opportunity to give your life to the Lord fully and completely. He even says in Romans 14.9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Resurrection is a reality for both believers and unbelievers and unbelievers in the afterlife will be judged with eternal punishment and believers will be judged at the cross of Jesus Christ so what does Paul think about death in the afterlife well he's not like those who talk about kicking the bucket he's not talking about those who pass on he's not talking about those who want not to speak about death at all, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. This is Paul's teaching. Verse 1, For we know that if the tent, that's our, our physical body, our earthly home, if it's destroyed, that's obviously talking about death, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You see that there's an afterlife. For in this tent, in this human body, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, while we're still alive, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, so that when you end this life, you enter into the next life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In other words, it's a guarantee. It's a guilt-edge guarantee. It will happen that if you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, on the very moment of our last breath, we are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord in the afterlife. We are. We won't get our resurrected bodies until later. But our soul, our spirit, is immediately ushered into the Lord's very presence. You say, how can you know that? Because it says the Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee. A guarantee, a down payment, a promise. And then Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, So we are always of good courage. Now Paul, you don't understand my aches and pains. You don't understand my near-death experience. You don't understand how difficult these maladies are in my life and in the life of even Christian people. He says, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, 
we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's why Paul said, to be with Christ is far better. Then he says in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So we're pleasing Him and we're joyful in the process. That's why Paul says back in Philippians 1.25, Convinced of this, convinced that I know it's probably more necessary for me to remain in this physical body, in this life, for your account, Philippians, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Joy. I mean, who out there, my friends, even religious people, other than Christianity, who out there is talking about death and joy at the same time? Who's out there talking? Anybody give me a word on that? There is rejoicing even in the sorrow of death. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Why? Because we seem to be so tied to this world. We seem to be so earthly minded that we lose sight of the fact that it's Paul and the other Bible writers who are saying constantly about the afterlife, about the future, about what's to come, that if you and I have a right theology about these things, a right thinking about these things, we can have both joy, rejoicing, and even death on our heels, and we will be one day with the Lord. That's the hope of the Christian. That's the only... That's the only Saving religion that gives that kind of hope. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we're not like those, every other religion in the world, every other non-religionist in the world, everything except Christianity, we're not like those who have no hope. We have hope. We have hope. And the way that you have greater degrees of hope ever-increasing vistas of joy in your life, even at the prospect of the fact that we're all dying daily, is this. Every day of my life, I'm increasingly less infatuated with the world, and I'm increasingly more in love with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's, That's what it means to know Christ. Now, will we be admonished often even by our Bible writers, that we need to work on being more hopeful and more joyful and more rejoicing and less tied to this world? Sure. Sure. That's why he's writing to them as he is. And frankly, that's why Colossians 3 is in our Bible. If then you've been raised with Christ as though it's a done deal, and it is, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So yes, there's the exhortation i got to quit flirting with the world. i got to quit being infatuated with my stuff. And I've got to be 
increasingly loving Jesus Christ because one day I'm going to see Him face to face. And I want that well done, good and faithful slave of that affirmation from Him to me directly. So I want to be less in love with the world and more progressively in love with Him. No wonder Paul says this in verse 27 of Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now maybe he's talking there about the opponents of Christianity, because he himself has opponents in his incarceration. And so maybe he's given us example, exhibit A, about some of these people who need to have their minds not on their circumstances, but on Christ and our love for him so that we will not be frightened in anything by our opponents. He says this, this frightening from your opponents is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And I think what he means there is the very thing that he meant when he used salvation in verse 19, and that is your future deliverance, your future salvation, your eschatological hope, that which is going to come. For them, destruction. For you, salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you, verse 29, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Hey, I'll take the believing part, not so sure about the suffering. He says, it has been granted to you. You say, I don't like such a granting engaged, he says in verse 30, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So whether I'm alive and in conflict with my opponents or I'm dead and I'm in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ because my body's gone to the grave and my soul, my spirit, that which is the rational part of me, I'm seeing Christ face to face. That's far better. You know, it, you know what it does? It gives you the impetus to continue on in the battle. Whether it's battling something physically, battling people who will mistreat you physically, battling sickness, disease, battling the opponents of the gospel, whatever it may be. And he keeps saying rejoicing and joy. He says rejoice in the latter part of verse 18. He says joy in verse 25. And if that's not enough, look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 16, here's what you ought to do, Philippian believers. You ought to hold fast. You should be holding fast to the word of life so that, here's that phrase again, in the day of Christ... In the day of Christ, remember he said that in Philippians 1.6, in the day of Christ, I may be proud, or as the NASB says, I have reason to glory, 
that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, I'm working with you. I'm wanting to see you uh, conform to the very image of Christ. It's going to be completed in the day of Christ. And I want to know that you're holding fast to the word of life so that when Christ comes, I didn't run in vain. I didn't labor in vain. I worked well and I worked effectively by God's grace to see you get all the way there. And then he says this in verse 17. Speaks about himself. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, you remember. What's the drink offering? It was one of those offerings in the Old Testament, right? It was that libation. It was the idea that I am in what I'm doing as a worshiper, worshiping God. Whether it was the sacrificial animal or whether it was a libation offering or whatever the sacrificial system prescribed, what I was doing, presumably in the sincerity of my heart, was offering God my worship, right? Here's what Paul says in a new covenant context. Here's what I'm doing. I'm like a spiritual priest and you are those to whom I'm ministering. And so what I'm doing in my life is I am being poured out as a drink offering. You know what he's saying by that phrase? I'm dying. I'm being poured out. Every drop of blood that I am letting for Christ, every pain in my heart for your obedience and conformity to Christ, that drink offering analogy, that metaphor is that I'm pouring out my life for you in a sacrificial offering to God, and it's your faith that that's offering that I'm bringing to God. And he says this, and I am glad and rejoice. There it is again. Joy. And here's that, that conundrum, that, 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 that thing that doesn't seem to make sense. Joy in my pouring out my life in death for you. I mean, I'm like you. I'd like to have a really nice life. I'd like no pain. I'd like all the goodies. I'd like the cash. I like the the pot at the end of the rainbow. All of us, we want to be able to have gain without pain. It just ain't so not a part of the Christian life. And what Paul says, using himself as an example, is that I am pouring out myself in gradual, incremental death for you so that this sacrificial offering could reach the heavens and it would be wafting into the very nostrils of God as a sweet aroma so that when God accepts my ministry as such, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You say, I can't relate to him. I just don't get him. Because he seems to have these train tracks and the rail on the left is this joy and rejoicing and the rail on the right seems to be all the trouble that he could possibly deal with. And you mean to tell me that the Christian life is progressing on the rails with both? Yes. Yes. Now, praise God, the Spirit doesn't 
give us all the trouble at once, right? Aren't you glad that he actually extends it over a lifetime? No. Well, he does. He does. And I'm glad and rejoicing that, frankly, anything that I do for God is regarded by him as anything good. Because I know what I deserve. Just this joy and rejoicing. In fact, you want to see a living illustration of this, and it's not just Paul? Look down at verse 25 of Philippians 2. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. What's he want to tell them about Epaphroditus for? For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He was distressed because you heard he was ill. I'm so sorry that you heard that I was sick. Are you sick? Yes. But I'm so sorry that you heard that I was sick because that's, that's actually adding pain to your life. So I don't want to add pain to your life. So even though I'm sick, I want to find out about you. Now, is that, is that otherworldly? I mean, when we're sick, we all want to be pampered, right? I'm so glad that you know that I'm sick. I'm so thankful that you know that I'm not doing well. Because if you know I'm not doing well, then you'll focus all your attention on my not doing well. He says, I'm so sad that you heard that I was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrow at losing this brother, because he's so valuable to me. And then he says this, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may, what? Rejoice. rejoice. There it is again. Joy and rejoicing, even in the midst of sickness and near death. I mean, as soon as Paul figures out that Epaphras has gotten through the worst of it, he puts him on the road to get to the Philippians to find out about them. And he says, and that I may be less anxious. I don't want to be concerned about the Philippians untoward, so I'm going to put Epaphroditus, now that he's healed up, on the road again so he can check on you. Verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men why why should we honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me wow can we relate to any of this at all I mean I know this is happening in the first century and I know we live in the 21st century and and I can hear the naysayers I can hear look that's bible stuff we don't even know if this stuff is real anyway But if it is, we are cultured. We live in the 21st century. We've got medicine to deal with these things. We've got engineering and electronics. We've got smartphones. We have tablets. We have everything we need. This is an antiquated book. How can it relate to us? Well, it relates to us in this way. Look at Philippians 3. Paul says, To depart and be with Christ is far better. And this is what he says in the latter part of verse 8 of Philippians 3. 
in order that I may gain Christ. There it is again. I want to gain Christ and be found in Him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So to die is Christ. I want to gain Christ. Verse 10, this is what I really want to do. This is my heart. This is my focus. This is my pursuit. This is the central aspect of my life that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. There's afterlife again. And may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul, becoming like Him in His death? There you are talking about death again. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's resurrection. That's what, we're, that's what we're celebrating today, right? Resurrection. I want to attain the resurrection of the dead ones. And he says in verse 14, I press on toward that very goal, the goal for the prize, wonderful, joyful, rejoicing in the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Joy and rejoicing even in the face of certain eventual death. And he says, we're not like those, according to verse 19, who have their minds set on earthly things. Remember Colossians 3? They've got their minds set on earthly things. But notice what he says is its opposite, verse 20. But our, speaking of believers, our citizenship is in heaven. It's as though he's saying, we're just passing through, Right? Our citizenship is already there. I'm already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's my real home. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's afterlife. There it is, right in Philippians, right where we're studying. By the power of the resurrection power of Christ that enables him, Christ, even to subject all things to himself. How's that? He's Lord. He's Lord. Everything is subjected to him. And he's the Lord of power. No wonder he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There's joy again. I mean, you, you, you can't read about death without reading also about joy. Joy and death. We ought to write a song. <laughs> joy and death. Tis so sweet. And they'd run us out on a rail, wouldn't they? Because you don't talk like that. You don't think like that. We, we've got our minds too often set on earthly things, but we have to have our citizenship mindset about heaven and awaiting for this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the very power that raised Him from the dead. You want to see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Look over there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Oh, this is great. If you ever read First and Second Thessalonians, you'll read, read again about the afterlife. And this is what it says, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they, 
these believers, even some of these who are in Philippi, because Macedonia is that area, Achaia, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians, and how you, the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what resurrection does. It delivers us from the wrath to come. There will be wrath poured out by God Almighty on this earth in a day affixed by the Father. And for Christians, we are those who believe in Jesus and who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9. This is another afterlife statement. For God has not destined us, true believers, for wrath, but to obtain salvation. That means ultimate salvation. The whole package deal, justification, sanctification, glorification through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that just means alive or dead, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's what I want to do today. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up about the afterlife. I've read the last chapter. We win. <laughs> we win. It's, it's so glorious. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's another afterlife statement. Verse 9. Those who don't know the Lord, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, which means that there is a presence of the Lord to be had by true believers. There is a heaven. There is an afterlife. There is a resurrection. And from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day, the day of Christ, to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You say, I'm not convinced. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that, hear it, hear it, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's heaven. That's your glorification. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Eternal comfort and good hope. Eternal comfort. Yes, sometimes it really stinks down here. But we persevere. We're embattled. We take it upon ourselves to fight the good fight. And what's going to be given to us? Eternal comfort. Good hope. Good hope. Now, I've given you just a smattering, believe it or not, just a smattering of Paul's words. You say, what about Jesus? Paul, I'm not so sure. Jesus, I can bank on that. All right? Turn to John chapter 11. And this will be in just a few minutes. John chapter 11. If you think that Paul's words, his epistles, hey, maybe I could take or leave, I'm not sure, 
Are they a part of the Word of God? Is Paul really a true teacher from God? Give me Jesus, all right? John 11, verse 25. This might have been the very passage that preachers all around the world might be using today. I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he Though he dies, you've got massive amounts of people all around the world that say, after death, that's it. That's it. Nothing else happens. You're poofed out of existence. You're annihilated. Even possibly well-meaning Christians who haven't studied sufficiently these texts might even say, well, that's the conditional immortality. If, if someone's an unbeliever and they die, unlike the believer who goes to be with the Lord forever, the unbeliever is simply judged for a time and then he goes out of existence or his immortality is conditional or he's annihilated. Or if you're irreligious, you just say, live it up now because tomorrow we die, it doesn't matter No one's going to be conscious of anything. No one's really going to be judged. There's not a hell of fire. There's no eternal perdition, not in the least. Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that question wasn't just for her. It's for everybody in the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 even goes beyond just the statement of I'm the resurrection and the life. It goes further. Verse 21 of John 5, this is the the very statements of the apostle John about our Lord Christ. John 5, 21. For... As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has, what kind of life? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, His aseity, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And they had big problems with this. These religious leaders who should have known better, they had big problems with this. They, they attempt to start jousting with Jesus And he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These are Jesus' words. Paul's words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, the divine Son of God. These are his words. 
How about the Father's words? One verse, Exodus chapter 3. Look there. We'll go all the way back to the Old Testament. And you know in Exodus chapter 3, beyond the book of Genesis, when there was an Abram who was Abraham, and then there was an Isaac, and then there was a Jacob. And what happened chronologically when we come to the historical record of Exodus about those three men? Are they dead or alive? Are they? Are, are they alive? I mean, I read in, in, in my book of Genesis that the, the, the Bible says that Abraham died and he, he was buried in a, in a cave. Is that what you read? I, I read about Isaac that, that he was alive and then, and then he died. Is that what you read? Oh, what about Jacob? Same with him? Yeah, that's what I read in, in Genesis. But then when I go to Exodus, look at chapter 3. I mean, by the time this is all unfolding, they've gone into the grave. But in Exodus 3, 6, notice this. And here's what Yahweh says. Here's what God the Father says. And He said, and He said to Moses there at the burning bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's the verb? Well, I, I, thought, I thought they died. I, I thought they're in the cave. I, 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 isn't it supposed to say, I was the God of Abraham. I, I was the God of Isaac. I, I was the God of Jacob. I mean, they're, they're, they're no longer living. They're done. Trash heap of history. Never to be remembered. Forgotten forever. Isn't that what so many people think? I mean, that, that, that's what they're committed to. Now go to Matthew 22. Jesus takes this very statement of the Father and He uses it against the Sadducees because the Sadducees were those who denied what? Resurrection. They denied explicitly the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of persons from the dead. And so they give Jesus this lame cockamamie story about teacher... Moses said, so tie that back to Exodus. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow. That's that kinsman redeemer idea. And raise up offspring for his brother to keep the line going. And now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third and down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Now remember, they don't believe in resurrection. So they're trying to trap him, Right? So in the resurrection, which we don't really believe in, therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, had her as his wife. What did Jesus say? Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. You know, if you ever have a conversation with Jesus, you don't want him saying something like that. You are wrong. Why? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Well, you don't know the Scriptures because I'm about to re-quote it for you. And you don't know the power of God because you deny resurrection from the dead. 
For, Jesus said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know that even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob went to the grave, they were still alive. Their souls, their souls were still alive. Oh, that that body, to be sure, it, it was in that cave in Machpelah, for Abram, it was, it, was, it was that cave that held his, his physical debris, his physical ruins, to be sure. But where was his soul? Where was his soul? His soul was in vouchsafed safekeeping by the Father who says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was. And Jesus is turning on that one verbal idea, not was, but is. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And no wonder, verse 33 says, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he proved in just one verse that the Sadducees are sad, you see? Because they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. And uh, I fear that there are multitudes of people who have physically died or who are currently living who know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Because they deny what the scripture teaches, all that I've taught you today, And they deny the physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. They deny the very power of God. And you know, some might be sitting right in our midst. Some of you might be sitting there saying, I don't believe a word you said. And I don't believe a word of this. It's because you don't have faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. You should read it. Hebrews 11.1, 1. If, if that's you and if you have a Bible with you, you should most assuredly read it. This is, this is what it takes for you to truly understand and affirm what has been taught. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There might be multitudes of people say, if I can't see it, if I can't scientifically prove it, it's not true. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God, that's a way for the writer of Hebrews to say, to be saved, for whoever would be saved must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So maybe you're actually sitting there as an unbeliever today and you're saying, I do want to believe this. I do. I don't want to stand at the portals of judgment and hear you neither understand the scriptures nor the power of God. So what do I do? 
Well, what do you do? What, what's the answer? Well, here's the answer. Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. This is the answer. This is, this is the answer now, and it's the answer until the judgment day itself. Listen very carefully, my friends. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be delivered from your sin. You'll be with us in that eschatological future salvation day, the day of Christ. You'll be with us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not, not Caesar, not anybody else, not my money, not my fame, not, not anything about me, not anything about anybody else, but Jesus alone is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, delivered from your sin. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What do you confess? Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. For the scripture says, and this is your hope, this is my hope, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Never shall you and I be ashamed at the judgment seat. Never. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, uh, Jews and Gentiles, everybody in the whole world. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon the Lord today. If you know Him, you say, well, I, I don't. That's the whole point. Then believe that He's Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead. Turn from every other Theory, fable, myth, idea that you've ever thought and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead and the Bible says you'll be saved. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Heavenly Father, You have given us the answer. You're not the God of, of those who are forever perished. You're the God of the living, of Abraham, of Isaac, of, of Jacob. You're the God of every Christian in the new covenant who's come to a place of believing in you and hoping for you throughout all eternity. And even if his body's in the grave, even if she lies there in the midst of worms, you know her eternal soul. You know his spirit. And you will one day even raise that body up from the grave. And you will join body and soul together. And we will have this glorious transformation of our body that looks like the transformed body of Jesus Christ. Oh, what hope. Oh, what joy. What rejoicing. And even as we might have sorrow about the manner of our death as Christians today, we do not fear the fact of it. And if there's anyone here today who says, I need to know this Jesus. I want a personal relationship with Him. I want to be saved. I want to be delivered. I believe by faith. Now, for the first time in my life, I believe then you believe 
because Jesus is Lord and He's given you a gift to receive Him and you believe that God raised Him from the dead and that He's alive. Oh, Father, bring into Your kingdom even this day those who have been destined to escape the wrath of God. And for us, as Christians of many months, if not years, if not decades, we don't fear the fact of death, only its manner. And we ask that you would give us glorious Christ, a kind of heavenly-mindedness that allows us to rejoice even in the face of our dying. For Jesus Christ and His resurrection and His Lordship, we offer you praise through Him. Amen and amen.